I do trust that all of you had a great time celebrating Jesus' birthday with your family and with your friends. And that that celebration doesn't just stop because Christmas is over, but that we celebrate Jesus for the rest of the year. I mean, that's what we're here to do. And, and we're back into our series in Colossians. And the, the idea behind the letter that Paul wrote to the church is that we are to be complete in Jesus. We don't need anything else. There's nothing to add to Jesus. There's nothing else that we can do. Everything that we have is fully in Christ. Uh, it's, it's all Jesus to make our life with God more complete. It, there's nothing else that we need. Jesus is all we need. And as we're working our way through this letter, we now come to a section in this letter that is not the most delightful part to deal with. It isn't a happy, good feel, good feeling section. It deals with some of life's more difficult issues. We, we have to wrestle with some of the questions that we maybe suppress at times and we don't want to really have to deal with. And, and it has to do with the issue of suffering. Why does God allow suffering? How can God, a God of love, bring suffering to the innocent like children or elderly or the poor? How does suffering fit in with God's purpose to bring good news to all people because suffering isn't good news? And more importantly, the question we ask is, why am I suffering? What did I do? And, and those are fair questions for us to ask. But we need to really understand about uh, a thing about suffering is, is that in the garden, Adam and Eve had it perfectly put together. God had everything. There was no suffering until they disobeyed God. And then God said, now your life will have suffering in it. And every person since Adam and Eve has had this thread running through their life. It runs through the course of history. And this thread is called suffering. We all suffer. We've, we've suffered many things before in our lives. We, we've suffered from illness. We suffer from the devastation of war, from epidemics and pandemics. We suffer loss of death. We suffer financial loss. We suffer in relationships. And we suffer in loneliness. We suffer. We all do. And oftentimes when we're suffering, we, we believe we're the only ones that is suffering to this depth, that we're the only ones that have suffered this much. And so we throw ourselves a little pity party on our suffering. The reality is that every generation suffers. Some people suffer because of bad and sinful decisions that they make. Other people suffer by no fault of their own. And then there are those who suffer because they stand up for righteousness, justice, and Jesus. And they suffer. One of the things that's become evident to me is that Christ followers in this country are starting to be harassed at all levels for their faith, for standing up for righteousness in Jesus. You, you, they get harassed at the workplace by people who hate God. It carries all the way right through our government who's starting to make life difficult for Christ followers. And maybe we're surprised by that, but if you... If you kind of read the end of the book, that's what's going to happen. And Jesus kind of promised us that it's going to get a whole lot worse before it gets a lot better. 
So it's, it's not one of those things that you, when you're talking to your friends about the glories of Jesus, you don't immediately go, hey, Jesus is, loves you and he died on the cross for your sins and you're going to suffer like nothing else. Because they're going to go like, no, I don't want that. Now, this, this whole thing is that um, we're going to start suffering in this country for our faith. But we're just going to catch up with the rest of the world. Because Christ followers all around the world, even right now as we're talking, are being martyred for their faith. They're given a choice. You either deny Christ or you die, and they take death. And I, I can't see into the future, but if you, I, I mean, I just look back over the history of my life where Jesus was a name that was revered among people. Christmas was celebrated around the birth of Christ. And now everything that we deal and face with is like it's no longer Merry Christmas, it's Happy Holidays. You can't put up a manger scene in town square. They have it ripped down. I mean, anything that points to Christ is, is demolished and torn apart. But yet anything that is from a false god or false religion is celebrated. And, and we know, we, get, we have that feeling that there is something dreadfully wrong in all that. And so there's both good news and bad news in that. The bad news is, is that as a country, we've lost our moral compass. What God would say is evil and sinful, people are now saying it is good. That's the bad news. The good news is that out of suffering, the church flourishes. The gospel spreads. God is glorified. You hardly ever hear anybody say, I grew closest to God when my life was free from pain and suffering. Everything was good, and Jesus and I were just growing like crazy. That is rarely the case. And so this morning... I want to talk about suffering on two levels. First, from the standpoint that Paul is talking about in Colossians 1.24, and the second is suffering that we all face in life. I don't think we can just talk about the first one without addressing the second one because what Paul talks about, and we're going to get into it in a minute, is that, that the suff- there is suffering that we have in our lives because we have taken a new stance, we've become a new creature in Christ, we are, are new people, and because of that, people don't like it. The enemy hates it. And so they, there's suffering that comes just along with identifying with Christ. But then there is other suffering that we face in our life. And it, it, we need to take a look at that as well this morning because in our time together, we want God's word to be, be productive in our life so that we have a better understanding of both of them. So first, let's look at Paul's words to the church, Colossians 1, 24 through 26. And here's what it says. I now rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Here Paul's telling us the church that he's suffering because of Jesus. Now, I want you to understand that what he's dealing with is on on two levels, is is he's addressing the church. First, there are 
Jews who believed in Jesus to be the Messiah, the King of God, who has come to the earth, and they understand his role as Messiah King, suffering King. And so they step into faith in Jesus, and they're pushing away a lot of the old traditions that they had as they grew up in Judaism. But what they still hold on to and think in their own minds is that that Jesus was a Jew, and he is only for the Jews. And so as Paul brings the, the gospel message to the Gentiles, anybody here Jewish? We're all Gentiles. Uh, just look at your neighbor and go, hey, Gentile heathen, glad you're here today. Because that's who we are, according to the Jews. And, and, and so he has this message that he's been taken to the Gentiles, but the Jews were not very pleased with him for doing that. They, they were looking at him as he is messing with the establishment. And then Paul also was being pressured by the culture because there are false gods and idols and temples and everything set up. And Paul was bringing this ministry, this good news to the Gentiles that they would experience the grace of God found in Jesus for salvation. And so it's those outside of the faith wanted to stop Paul because he was upsetting the status quo of the religious establishment and the Jews wanted him to stop it because this was only for God's chosen people of Israel. So he's got a lot of pressure coming on him and he's he's saying, I've suffered. I'm rejoicing in the suffering that I'm bringing the gospel of Jesus to people who really need to hear it. At one point in in having to deal with suffering and with churches, not just the Colossians church, but the church in Corinthian, the Corinthian church, he had to deal with them too because they were kind of getting off track on a whole bunch of stuff and there was a whole bunch of tomfoolery going on in the, in the Corinthian church and they were kind of beating Paul up too for being uh, suffering for Jesus. And, and they were bragging about all kinds of things. And so what they did is they really forced Paul into a place where he didn't want to go. He had to brag about who he was in Christ and what God had been doing through him and where he had gone and what he had done in order to bring this church back to the reality of who Jesus is in us. And so I want to read from Colossians or Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11, 21 through 29. It says this, But what anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that myself. Are Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? Well, so am I. Are they the servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Now, here's the part I want you to see. He says, Five times I have received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches who is weak. I am not weak who is made to fall. I am not indignant. 
that's really not the passage you want to bring to somebody who's considering following Jesus. They're like, what? All that stuff happens to you after you become a Christ follower? Well, it doesn't happen to everyone. Matter of fact, I don't know anyone who's had to deal with the insults, the hardships, the persecution, the calamities that Paul did. And not only did he he survive all that, he thrived through it because of what Jesus was doing in the middle of all the stuff we would call bad. We look at it and we call it bad stuff. But that's not what Paul did. At the end of his little tirade with the Corinthian church, in in chapter 12, verses 9-10, here's what he says. But he said to me, that's God, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I mean, that, that really sums up the way we step into the sufferings of life. That's really the way that God wants us to to understand it because we're going to face all kinds of suffering, everything. There isn't anything we're immune from just because we're Christ followers. We will suffer. But, But God's made this promise that his grace would be sufficient for us while we are suffering. There is nothing that he's going to withhold from us. Paul says that in all of our sufferings, when we are weak and we cannot carry on at one more moment, we have to rely solely upon the strength of Christ and He will give to us what we need when we need it. He's not giving us a camelback with a straw on it so that we can sip for strength when we think we want, we can store it up so that it's there ready to go whenever we need it. He's What Jesus is saying to us, what What God is telling us is that you're going to run into the struggles of this world. You will have extra struggle in your life because you have followed me. He says, don't worry about it. Don't worry if the world hates you because it hated me first. But what I will do is at the very moment when you think you can't go on for another second, I am going to empower you with my Holy Spirit to give you strength so that you can press on. So that you can, you can have the resolve to carry on to where God is, wants to take you. Let's go back to our passage in Colossians and look at what Paul is saying. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. He, he's saying he's doing it for the church. He's rejoicing and he's suffering for the church. But it's this next little phrase I want us to pay attention to because he says, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now, when we take a first glance at this, it seems like Paul is saying is that Jesus' suffering and death wasn't enough. And so he's going to make up the difference for what's lacking in Jesus' contribution in suffering. But that is not what he is saying. Because a lot of times we don't read deep enough and understand well enough what he's talking about. First and foremost, we need to find that we have atonement through Christ's suffering and death. And and let me explain what atonement means so that we're all on the same page. The English word for atonement originally meant at one or at one with 
like being in harmony with someone. And in this case, it means to be at one with God through the atonement that was made possible by the substitutionary death of Christ on our behalf. In other words, what we deserved was death, but Jesus stepped in and became our substitute on the cross to die for our sins. We didn't have to pay the penalty. He paid it all for us. That's the substitutionary death of Christ. And, and it, it's Jesus' sacrifice on the cross where his substitutionary death was the satisfaction to God. It was the covering or the pacifying of the wrath of God that he would pour out on us for our sin. The penalty for sin was satisfied to God by the death of Jesus. It was the last sacrifice that would ever have to be made for sin. No more killing of little lambs or bulls or doves. No more blood being spilt on our behalf. Because Jesus' blood spilt on the cross was more than enough to satisfy God's wrath. There should have been an amen or six or seven. Yeah, thank you. There's nothing more required by God for our sin. Therefore, we have atonement through Christ and are at one with God. That is just great news for us. So if Paul isn't saying that he's making up for what was lacking, what is he saying? As best as I can determine... Paul was filling up in his turn the leftover parts of Christ's suffering. Jesus gave more than enough. And so Paul's taking that suffering. He's taking his turn in sharing in the affliction. Because as he did that, he encouraged others to press through in the afflictions of this world and follow after him for the sake of Jesus. And Paul never complained about his suffering. Paul was willing to suffer any affliction, hardship, persecution in order to share Jesus, even with just one person. He also knew that the church would benefit from his suffering because of the strength that was given to him by the Holy Spirit to endure and carry on. Others were encouraged to endure and carry on just as he did. And that's how the gospel of peace, the gospel, the good news of Jesus has been spread throughout the world. Because as they ran into persecution, it didn't stop them. It spurred them on to go further. They had the power by the Spirit to do it. Now let me talk about the other suffering. And I know that we often have question about God's love or wisdom or understanding when it comes to what we call, I don't deserve it, suffering. I didn't deserve this. Why am I suffering? Since God is the source of all goodness, His glory is the wellspring of all joy, what God does for His own sake benefits us. Therefore, whatever glorifies Him is good for us. And that includes the suffering He allows or brings into our lives. God refines us in our suffering and graciously explains why, as seen in Isaiah 48.10, and that's not on the slide. Listen to, to, to the words that he gave Isaiah. See, I have refined you, though not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. 
For my own sake I do this. God emphasizes and repeats the reason why he brings affliction and suffering into our lives. It's for his own sake. We go like, that doesn't make sense because it doesn't make me feel good. Well, get over it. You're going to tell God, knock it off? Not a good idea. Just saying. If you don't understand that that the universe is about God and his glory, and that's what we've talked about in Colossians, how, how the universe all revolves around God. But if, if we don't understand that, and that whatever exalts God's glory also works for your ultimate good, then you will misunderstand this passage and countless others. Some consider God to be egotistical or cruel to test us for his sake. But the testing he does for his sake occurs for our eternal benefit because suffering helps us to grow and mature in Christ. He, Jesus isn't coming back to take an adolescent bride to heaven. He's coming and looking for a mature bride, a, a church that is fully mature and, and, and filled with all kinds of people. That's what he's looking for. That's what he wants to do. Let me help you understand this because we live in a place, I mean, when you walk out of here today, you will look to the west and you're going to see those gorgeous snow-capped mountains. And they are beautiful. They are spectacular. And a lot of people come to Lander to climb mountains. But if, if all they wanted to do was to get to the summit, they would hire a helicopter to fly them up there. But a mountain climber, their ultimate purpose is conquest, not efficiency. They do want to reach a goal, but they want to do so the hard way, by testing their character and their resolve. That's what God's calling us to do. He allows allows suffering and affliction to come into our lives to test our character and our resolve and whether we truly trust Him to take us through this and to recognize that whatever this bad stuff is is that I'm going through ultimately is for my good and His glory. That's what suffering's all about. You know, we don't think of it as God's love for us. When we think of love, we think of love that means to do no harm. When in reality... It means to be willing to do short-term harm for redemptive purposes. I just think about it. If you, I mean, we've all been children, and a lot of us have children. And when our children are misbehaving and, and disobedient and are sinful, we bring discipline to their lives. It's not pleasant. They don't like it. They want to get out of it as soon as possible, but we bring that discipline to them for a short time to create a long-term work of God's righteousness in their life. Let me put it to you in a different way. A physician who re-breaks an arm in order to heal properly harms his patient in order to heal him. Or if you take the, the surgeon, suppose you're that you are up against a uh, a surgeon whose intentions are wholly good. The kinder and more uh, conscientious he is, 
the more relentlessly he will go on cutting. If he yielded to your appeals, if he stopped before the operation was complete, all the pain up to that point would have been useless. What do you think people mean when they say, I'm not afraid of God because I know he's good? Have they ever been to a dentist? I'm telling you, me and dentists, I like the man, but I hate the practice. I've suffered more pain in my life from dentists than from anything else. Well, except my brothers. They should have been dentists. But what we say, we have this little saying in here. You're going to help me out with it. God is good, even in suffering. Uh-huh. Yeah, we, uh, that's really easy to say right now because none of us maybe are suffering. But let me, let me carry on here. If cancer or paralysis or a car accident prompts us to draw on God's strength to become more conformed to Christ, then regardless of the human, demonic, or natural forces involved, God will be glorified in it. Because what? He is good. A young woman wrote this letter to her pastor. Her husband had died, and this is what she wrote. One thing that I've been become convinced of is that God has def different definitions for words than I do. For example, he does work all things for my eternal good and his eternal glory. But his definition of good is different than mine. My good would never include cancer and young widowhood. My good would include healing and dying together in our sleep when, you are in, when, you are, when we were in our 90s. But cancer was good because of what God did that he couldn't do any other way. Cancer was, in fact, necessary to make Bob and me look more like Jesus. So in love, God allowed what was best for us in light of eternity. God is good. God uses suffering to purge sin from our lives, strengthen our commitment to him, force us to depend upon his grace, bind us together with other believers, produce discernment, foster sensitivity, discipline our minds, impart wisdom, stretch our hope, cause us to know Christ better, make us long for truth, lead us to repentance of sin, teach us to give thanks in times of sorrow, increase our faith, and strengthen our character. And once he accomplishes such great things, often we can see that our suffering has been worth it. I don't know how many of you know Lorinda and my story. When I was in college, my dad had a major stroke. It should have killed him. The doctors were amazed that he survived. And meaning survived is that he was badly crippled. He could hardly walk. He had no use of his left arm. This is a man, uh, oh, and also, he had a hard time controlling his emotions. The first time he went to church, he bawled all the way through it. I'd never seen my dad cry before. 
He cried through the entire service. His emotions were out of control, as was his filter. It just disappeared completely. If it was here, it came out here. And it took him a while to realize that what he had just said was very hurtful. That was not the dad that I knew. The dad that I knew was a man who would hunt and fish. He would go camping. He cut cords of wood. He preached many times twice on a Sunday. And there, were even, uh, there was even a stretch of years, nine years, where he preached three or four times on a Sunday. He taught the Word of God in Bible studies. He discipled people. He ministered to them. And yet, here's this man who's been stricken by a stroke. And it took my dad, when he finally learned how to walk, it took him over an hour just to walk a mile. His left arm was completely useful. At one point, he begged the doctor to amputate it because it got in his way. My dad had his stroke when he was 54. And he lived to be 82. 28 years of suffering with a body that didn't do what his mind told it to do. Three months after my dad had a stroke, Lorinda's mom passed away. She was 42. She lost her fight with cancer. We got married five months later. At the age of 69, my mom was overcome with leukemia. They diagnosed her, and three months later, she was with Jesus. We've suffered a little bit. You know, but one of the things I was able to talk to my mom and dad about, I didn't have a chance to talk to Lorinda's mom about it. I asked them if they were ever mad at God for the illness my mom had and the affliction my dad suffered with a stroke. My mom said, Jesus has a new assignment for me in heaven. And that's why I'm going home. I asked my dad if he was mad at God for allowing him to have a stroke. And my dad said, there are a lot of things that I've been learning about myself and about God that I would have never have learned had I not had a stroke. I don't know all the purposes of God in the suffering that we've had. It's been difficult on us. I mean, if, if you have grandparents around or you're able to see and be with your grandchildren, thank God for that. We've virtually had, and some of you are that to our kids, and we've had it, God has just supplied graciously for us. We've had surrogate grandparents wherever we've moved to, people that have just loved on our children as though they were their own. That's God's grace in suffering. There have been many nights when my wife would say, I wish my mom was around so I could ask her, what about this? Now, I'm not trying to, uh, okay, I was trying to make you cry, but I think I did a good job. But here's the, here's the simple truth. God does not simply want us to feel good. He wants us to be good in Christ. And very often, the road to being good in Jesus involves not feeling good. When we're in community with Jesus, suffering becomes the loving, skillful handiwork of the vine dresser, as is said in John chapter 15, where Jesus 
takes the shears of the vine dresser and the fruit that he had, the vine, the branches he has, he trims them back so they'll produce more fruit. That's, that's lovingly God doing his work in our lives to make us more productive. It maybe involves unknown sin, uh, areas that we may not be aware of, but are nevertheless hindering us from growth and fruitfulness. When believers live under suffering joyfully, that is, they endure and keep on applying the promises and principles of faith, Christ's life or character will be more and more manifested as they grow through suffering. This means trust, peace, joy, stability, biblical values, faithfulness, and obedience in contrast to sinful mental attitudes, blaming, running, complaining, and reactions against God and His people. Now, these are not all the answers to why do we suffer? Why is suffering happening? Why does God do all this? I don't have enough time to go into all that, but this is just kind of uncovering the top of it, just exposing it a bit for you to dig deeper into what God's Word has to say for you. But let me help you understand and understand this to the core of your being, that regardless of what's going on, no matter what the suffering or the affliction is that we have, we have a God who is empathetic to our situation, to our suffering, and sympathize with us as we go through it. We're not alone. Never are we alone. So what is the purpose of suffering? I'm, we may not have hit that fully, but the Bible tells us clearly in Romans 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit has, who has been given to you. In other words, all the suffering, all the affliction, all the pain, all that stuff is producing a good work that God wants to do in you. And the reason why we can get through it is because out of God's grace, hope, love, and mercy, He has poured His loving Spirit into our lives to help us get where He wants us to go. Not a lot of fun, but highly effective. Let's go back to our, our main text in Colossians because I, I want to really help us move along here a little bit. So it, it Colossians 1, 27 through 29, but at the end of, of 26, um, Paul talks about the mystery hidden from ages and generations but now revealed to the saints. And then he goes on to say, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is in Christ, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. Sometimes when we read a passage like this and, and we look, we see a word in the Bible, then we try to apply our understanding and our definition uh, of it to uh, our life when in fact it means something totally different like the word mystery. 
This is one of those words. In our world today, mystery means puzzling event or situation. Some religious groups will tell you that there is a mystery to knowing God and you can only find out what it is by joining them and going through a series of events that will unlock the mystery. That's horse feathers. The way Paul uses the word here is that mystery is a sacred secret hidden in the past now revealed by the Holy Spirit. It was hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. So what is the mystery? Is It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, here's, here's how it kind of worked out with this whole thing. God had promised Israel a king who would one day establish a glorious kingdom and fulfill many of the promises made to Abraham and David. The Old Testament prophets wrote about a Messiah who would suffer and a Messiah who would reign. They could not explain the seeming contradiction. They did not understand that the Messiah first had to suffer before he could enter into his glory and reign. This mystery is complex just as God is complex. It is that to all who put their faith in Christ as their Savior, He will give them the gift of His presence in their life, and that's called the Holy Spirit indwelling our hearts. Promised when we step into faith. I mean, as soon as someone steps into faith with Christ, immediately, boom, the Holy Spirit's presence is here, in here. It works in here. I know it works because when I do bad stuff, He pokes me right here and says, Knock that off, Jack Wagon. Because my nature would say, keep going, dirtbag. But the Spirit of God convicts. When I read passages of Scripture, I open them up and I read them into the, to the natural mind. It, it is just like, oh. But when the Spirit of God empowers me to understand, it's like, oh. That's what the Spirit of God does. That's that mystery that was held before that, that they couldn't explain or understand because... We have everything in my life. It's through the Spirit of God that lives in my life. He lives in yours if you have Jesus as your Savior. All that I, I have all of God that I will ever need. I will never get any more and I will never get any less. It's always full to completeness in my life. It's just am I enacting on the power and the person of the Holy Spirit in my life that God's given me? Many times we don't because that's out of disobedience. The sec secondly, the mystery is that God has initiated a new program that is not exclusively to Jews only. He is creating a new nation, a family with adopted kids from every tribe and nation, from every culture and language. And when he gathers them together, he called them the church, a gathering of different peoples all coming together under the authority of Jesus with a common purpose and goal, to make disciples, to baptize them and teach them to obey all things that Jesus taught. Christ in you and the, is the hope of glory. It isn't what you do for God. It isn't how good you are. It isn't how much you suffer for the kingdom of God. It isn't your attendance record at church, nor is it how much you know about God that will bring your glory, bring your Hope for glory, it is simply God's redemptive work of Christ in your life. Christ, the hope of glory. 
Christ is, is in you, and that's what brings you hope for glory. And that is enough. Once we were all hopeless, but now we have a glorious hope that is only found in Jesus. Amen? God, Paul goes on to say that because of the hope we have, we now have this awesome responsibility to share that hope. He says we are to proclaim, or that's to announce with authority, the authority of Christ, the gospel of hope and grace. We are to warn everyone. We're to, to put out a warning to people that your life without Jesus is going to end up in a dead end of hopelessness. But if we warn them about that, we tell them that you will have hope, not just for tomorrow to be able to get out of bed, not just for next year, not just for the next 10 years, not just for the rest of your life, but for all of eternity. That's what we're called to do. Because the reason why we do this Teach everyone with all wisdom, meaning that we bring the Word of God to bear on every situation of our lives. I don't care what it is that you're going through. In your life, God's Word has something to say to you to help you to figure out how it is you're supposed to deal with this current circumstance. That's what it's there for. Because all of that put together is to bring us to maturity as a body, as a family of God, so that... that we can go out and we can get those who are still outside looking in. We're called to do that. But this is not just a job for Pastor John and me. It is the collective work of the gathering of Christ followers. My job, John's job, is to help you to know how to do that. We're good. We've, We've studied. God's given us a calling on our lives and says, build the church up. Teach them what to do. Help them to know what they're supposed to do. The good works that I've prepared long ago, you teach them. They're going to go out and do it. You all join in ministry and you do it all together. That's what Paul's talking about here. He's telling the church that we all work together. It's not left up to one or two people. We all, we all have a part to play. And I know that many of you are, are thinking to yourselves like, you know, I don't know enough. I'm not spiritually mature enough. I'm not strong enough. Let me remind you that it is in your weakness God shows his strength. And he will give what you need to do what he has called you to do at the right moment. Back to our our passage here, as Paul is talking about toiling, he says that he's struggling with all of God's energy. It's not his own strength. He's relying on on the work of the Spirit in him to energize him to do what he is supposed to do and that that God will work powerfully in him to accomplish what he's been called to do. That's the great news. We, We don't have to do it on our own. God's never even told us to try to do it on our own. You try to do it on your own and it's miserable. But when, when God's involved, God just simply says, proclaim, watch me do the rest. Uh, this might be shocking to some of you. You can't save anybody. You can point them to the Savior, and he'll do the work. But you can't save one single soul. You can't even save your own soul. It's only by the work of Jesus in your life. That's what it is. 
And so we're just pointing. Uh, you know, you, I don't know how many of you have heard this before, but really the word of God and Jesus Christ and, and our call to that is that it's one beggar showing another beggar where to find the bread of life. That's our call. But still we lack confidence, don't we? That's where Hebrews 4 comes into play. Because he says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That means that at that moment when I need something and I start to pray, I'm not a kabillion miles away from heaven. Zoop, right into the throne room. That's where my prayer goes. It's the little red phone that you call the president with, only it's God. All right, God, Dad, got a situation here. And it's like, he's got you on speakerphone, actually. Go ahead. Yep. Yeah, I'm right there. I'm helping you. That's the confidence we have as we draw to the near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. In our time of need. That's what it is. We have need, and it doesn't just, just describe what need it is. It can be a need in suffering. It can be a need in the fact that my, my tongue is sticking to the roof of my mouth and I need to tell my neighbor about Jesus. It could be the need that I need patience right now. It could be the need that I need forgiveness right now. It's the need that I need to express your grace and mercy to someone else. The need to forgive, the need to receive forgiveness. It doesn't just define specifically what the need is. It's every need. That's what we have. So here are some questions I want you to consider this morning. More specific, you can apply them to a bunch of things, but I want to apply them more specifically to suffering because it's in our lives. It's part of the human condition. So in regards to suffering, here's what I want you to consider. How am I responding to it? How am I responding to it? How should I respond to it? How should I respond to it? Am I learning from it? Does my response demonstrate faith? They're writing over here. I'm helping them out. Does my response demonstrate faith, love for God and for others, Christ-like character, values, commitment, priorities? Last one. How can God use suffering in my life? Bottom line of suffering, God never wastes the pain. He'll not waste it. I want to just remind you of God's school of faith that has three levels. You haven't heard me talk about this for a while, but I want to remind you. The elementary level. That's for people who have just come into faith. They're fairly new at walking with Jesus. They've got a lot of questions. Uh, they are, they're learning how to trust. They're learning how God works, what God does. And so... What happens is they come to this elementary level and they're suffering or they're, in, they're needing help and so we pray. God answers, 
things change and your faith grows. Elementary level. The undergrad level is you're suffering or you need help and you pray. God says, not now and nothing changes and your faith grows. Graduate level. You're suffering, you need help, and you pray. It seems like God says nothing, and things get worse, and your faith grows. But only because of the way that you choose to respond. A lot of us are going, I don't want to be graduate level. I want to hear from God, and I want it changed right now. I believe that we're living in a time and era when we don't see the value out of affliction and suffering. We see no value in it whatsoever. We want to avoid it. We want to get out of it. We don't want to have to deal with it. We want God to remove us out and make our life comfortable and cozy again. But God has used throughout the history of mankind suffering and affliction to grow us deeper in relationship with him, to build our faith, to grow our trust in him, to help us understand that he is all we need. Jesus will only be all we need when Jesus is all we have. So you will either trust God that he is doing his best work for you and his glory or you won't trust him and you'll take over and you'll make a real mess of things. So the final question is, how are you going to respond to the work of God? Step into it and let him do his best work or back away and find your own way. Trust Jesus He's got your best in mind. Amen? Our Father, it's hard to say these words, and it's easy to say sometimes, especially when we're not suffering. But we want to thank you for the times that we have suffered because you have grown us. And so for today, God, there are people here who are probably right in the midst of suffering deeply. And I pray that their hearts would be encouraged, that they would be strengthened to know that you are holding them, you are leading them, you are carrying them through this present circumstance of suffering. For those, God, who are just coming out of it, that they would be able to look back and be able to say, God taught me this as I suffered, and I have grown, and I am becoming more like Jesus. And for those of us, who are just a heartbeat away from, from suffering, that as we step into it, that we wouldn't struggle to get out of it, but that we would trust you and that our prayer would simply be, help us, Lord Jesus, help us. We thank you for your gift, your grace of suffering, because without it, we would be weak and immature. Continue to grow your church and strengthen us, we pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.